It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Tuesday, September 28th, 2021. I'm Guy Benson, and this is The Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for listening. Every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. That's Monday through Friday. We also have bonus Benson on the weekends on the podcast. The podcast is free every day at GuyBensonShow.com. You can also listen live through our site, through all sorts of different avenues. Right There's the Fox News app. There's the live stream. There's our great affiliates all across the country. You've got options, and you can check them out at GuyBensonShow.com. And again, that podcast is on demand, no charge to you, every day. On today's show, here's who we've got for you coming up. U.S. Senator John Barrasso, who's a member of the Republican leadership in the upper chamber, he will be here to react to the biggest news coming out of today, which is the testimony of top military officials on Capitol Hill over Afghanistan. We will get into some of that sound here in just a moment. We will also ask the senator about the huge spending on Capitol Hill and the Democrats, whether they're getting their ducks in a row to pass the Biden agenda or whether that is still very much in flux. At this hour, it seems like it would be in flux. Senator Barrasso held up a stack of papers at a press conference earlier, a huge thick, I mean, it's like a foot thick saying this is what they're thinking about passing, although I'd love to know what that actually was because there's still no bill. There's no top line. There's no details. We'll ask him about all of that. Congressman Michael Waltz of Florida will also be here. He's a Republican, and I'm looking forward to asking him about Afghanistan and some of the rescue efforts that he is personally involved in. And, of course, we will get his reaction to the testimony from Secretary Austin, General Milley, General McKenzie and others today. He is a decorated Green Beret, is Congressman Waltz, and we look forward to having him back. Also, Josh Krasauer will stop by in our final hour. Josh, one in my mind, one of the sharpest political analysts out there right now, and we like getting his insights. I want to really ask him in detail, sort of down in the weeds on the Virginia governor's race. Because it is extremely close, and I think it is very interesting and potentially a harbinger of the national environment. If the Democrats win somewhat comfortably, I'm not sure that's an encouraging sign for Republicans in the midterms, even though I'd still say they have clearly an edge, at least to win back the House. If it is a razor-thin race in Virginia, that would suggest that certain demographics and areas of Virginia— are shifting back in the red direction, which could be very bad news for Democrats next year. And of course, if the Republicans win the governor's race, which they could, very much in the realm of possibility, it's a toss-up. If they win in Virginia, which has gotten nothing but bluer for the last decade plus, then I think the alarm bells start to sound at the DCCC and the DSCC. So Josh will be here talking about Virginia. Also, his predictions. He 
has a lot of great sources on Capitol Hill. What does he thinks? Uh, what does he believe at least will occur on Capitol Hill within the next few days? You now, the Democrats had a big meeting, sort of internal rally among Nancy Pelosi's crew yesterday. She has said that Thursday's the day for at least some of the voting, maybe on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. There are progressives saying, no, no, we've got dozens of votes against that if we don't get our way. It is still unclear where this thing is headed. We'll ask not just Senator Barrasso about that, but also Josh coming up a bit later on. Fox News alert as we begin the show. We will bring you statistics. The case count for coronavirus in the United States, 43.1 million cases all in since last March, with the real number much higher. The death toll is now 690,558. That's Americans alone who have passed away. The Dow is down 361 points right now, and it's just a down day across the board on Wall Street, and we will keep an eye on that as the market sell-off is underway. As I mentioned here at the very top, there are questions being put to top military brass and also civilian leadership about the Afghanistan catastrophe. And I know some of the Democrats who have been asking questions want to – once again, go through and relitigate the question about whether or not it was the right decision to get the U.S. out of Afghanistan altogether. That is a separate question. We have debated that here. We've had people on both sides of that question on this show. But by and large, the polling showed that the American public had quite an appetite to be done in Afghanistan. The real crux of the problem is the utterly incompetent chaotic and deadly way in which the Afghanistan withdrawal was executed by the Biden administration. And of course, this is something that has been a huge point of emphasis on our show for weeks. The Secretary of State gave testimony not long ago. Secretary Austin, the defense secretary, did not join him, but that changed today. He was there with General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, also General Kenneth McKenzie, who's the commander of U.S. Central Command. Uh, They were taking questions from U.S. senators, and they continue to do so before the Armed Services Committee in the upper chamber over on Capitol Hill, just steps from where we are broadcasting. And there have been a few pieces of news that have come out from this. We did mention, by the way, remember Milley and the Bob Woodward book and the allegations about his contacts with the Chinese about Trump towards the end of the Trump administration. Milley has admitted that he was in touch with not just Woodward, but other authors as well. So the suspicion or the speculation that he was one of these sources appears to now have been confirmed by the general himself. He also said that he knew absolutely all along that Trump had no intention of attacking the Chinese. That seems a little bit different than some of the reporting that's been out there. So we've been watching that element of the hearings, but so much of it has been focused, I think rightfully so, on the conduct of the withdrawal. And what a mess it has been. And you may remember that just before the U.S. pulled out completely, abandoning thousands of Americans in Afghanistan and tens of thousands of allies in Afghanistan after President Biden had promised we wouldn't leave any Americans behind. We wouldn't have our final boots off the ground until all Americans were out. That was not true. And he betrayed those people. President Biden did when he gave an interview right when things were going 
very south very quickly. He had been in hiding, basically, not taking any questions. We all looked on in horror while there were people clinging to airplanes, plummeting to their deaths as they were that desperate to get away from the Taliban. Biden finally emerged to talk to George Stephanopoulos. And one of the questions that Stephanopoulos asked him was this one, and this is a flashback. This is August, and then the president's answer cut 16 that became relevant again today. Listen. But your top military advisors warned against withdrawing on this timeline. They wanted you to keep about 2,500 troops. No, they didn't. It was split. That, that wasn't true. That wasn't true. They didn't tell you that they wanted troops to stay? No, not, at, not in terms of whether we were going to get out in a time frame all troops. They didn't argue against that. So no one, no one told your military advisors did not tell you, no, we should just keep 2,500 troops. It's been a stable situation for the last several years. We can do that. We can continue to do that. No, no one said that to me that I can recall. So that was President Biden just a few weeks ago. It had been widely reported that there were top military officials urging him to keep a presence on the ground, a small one. A stabilizing one. In fact, that was roughly the size of our presence there, and it had worked. It had been going quite well. We hadn't suffered a combat casualty on, you know, among our people in a year and a half, roughly. So at least during a withdrawal and during an evacuation, there were voices, we were told, advising the president, no, let's keep enough troops on the ground to keep things stable. So Stephanopoulos asked, you know, why didn't you do that? And what Biden didn't say at the time was, well, there were some people who said that, and I just ultimately disagreed because I view it's in our American interest to get out of there and, you know, continuing on with even a small force was not in our national interest. And as commander in chief, that was my decision, right? That was not his answer. That would have been, I think, an honest answer, potentially. It would have been debatable, but he could have he could have made that case affirmatively. I think he had a, a, an audience in the American people who would have been pretty receptive, many of them, to that argument. But that's not what Biden said, as you just heard, as we're reminding you with the flashback, uh, the flashback clip. He said that no one had told him to do that, as far as he could recall. No. Well, today, some of those military leaders were asked, did you recommend to the president that you keep a small residual force on the ground and their answers contradict what President Biden told the country and George Stephanopoulos just a few weeks ago. Here's General McKenzie earlier today, cut 13. I recommended that we maintain 2,500 troops in Afghanistan. And I also recommended earlier in the fall of 2020 that we maintain 4,500 at that time. Those are my personal views. I also have a view that the withdrawal of those forces would lead inevitably to the collapse of the Afghan military forces and eventually the Afghan government. Well, that is quite strikingly different than Biden's version of this story, is it not? General McKenzie also said that, indeed, these recommendations from him and others were heard by President Biden himself, cut 14. Did you talk to the president about General Miller's recommendation? Sir, I was present when that discussion uh, occurred. Mm-hmm. And I'm confident that the president heard all the recommendations and listened to them very thoughtfully. I'm confident that the president heard all the recommendations and listened to them very thoughtfully. 
So here we have under oath General McKenzie, Central Command Commander for the United States military saying, I personally recommended that we maintain 2,500 troops. And I personally know that the president heard these recommendations. Meanwhile, here's the Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman, General Milley, on keeping troops on the ground. And his recommendation, his assessment at the time, cut 15. Yes, my assessment was uh, back in the fall of 20, and it remained consistent throughout, that uh, we should keep a steady state of 2,500. And it could bounce up to 3,500, maybe something like that, uh, in order to move toward a negotiated gated solution. Did you, present, did you ever present that assessment personally to President Biden? I don't discuss exactly what uh, my conversations are with the sitting president in the Oval Office, but I can tell you what my personal opinion was, and I'm okay. always candid. I'm always candid. So the answer there is yes. McKenzie was explicit, and Milley was close to explicit. Both of these guys recommended keeping 2,500 U.S. troops on the ground. And yet when Biden was asked about this, as a reminder, in Cut 16, here's what he said. But your top military advisors warned against withdrawing on this timeline. They wanted you to keep about 2,500 troops. No, they didn't. It was split. That, that wasn't true. That wasn't true. They didn't tell you that they wanted troops to stay? No, not, at, not in terms of whether we were going to get out in a time frame, all troops. They didn't argue against that. So no one, no one told your military advisors did not tell you, no, we should just keep 2,500 troops. It's been a stable situation for the last several years. We can do that. We can continue to do that. No, no one said that to me that I can recall. No, no one said that to me that I can recall. Except for apparently, according to the men themselves under oath, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the commander of U.S. Central Command. Aside from that, no one said this to President Biden that he can recall. Well, I think it's sort of difficult to reach a conclusion based on what we've just heard beyond two options. Option one is that President Biden was lying to George Stephanopoulos, lying in that interview. Things were going very badly in Afghanistan. His poll numbers were starting to take a hit. People were very angry and horrified by what they were seeing. So he just decided to say, oh, yeah, this was my decision. And uh, no one, no one told me otherwise. No one recommended 2,500. He bristled when Stephanopoulos mentioned that. Oh, that's not true. That's not true. Either Biden was lying about that or the very last thing that he says was critical, which is he said that I can recall. Maybe the president does not remember his generals at the very highest level recommending things to him, which to me would be another very serious concern about the president of the United States. If his generals say do X, Y, and Z, sir, this is our recommendation, and he doesn't remember that they said those things to him, Obviously, that is alarming. So there is either a lie here or at least a deflection and obfuscation, some form of mendacity or dishonesty, or there is a deeply disturbing forgetfulness from the president of the United States on really critical matters. I don't think either one is great, right, to put it to put it very mildly. And I wonder if President Biden will come out and try to clean up uh, clean up after himself on this. 
Because when he says no one told him this, no one recommended this that he can recall, now we have under oath two people saying, actually raising their hands, I did. And it's totally the prerogative of the president to say, thank you, noted general, I appreciate your candid advice, I'm going to do this anyway because I'm commander in chief. That is the job. But that is a separate question from not telling the truth about what the advice was in the first place that was rejected. And therein lies the problem for Joseph R. Biden. More on today's testimony, which continues ongoing right now. As soon as we come back, it's The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to Guy Benson. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. A reconstituted al-Qaeda or ISIS with aspirations to attack the United States is a very real possibility. And those conditions to include activity in ungoverned spaces could present themselves in the next 12 to 36 months. That mission will be much harder now, but not impossible. Back on the Guy Benson show, that was General Milley earlier today. They just went into adjournment in the Senate hearing, but Milley's saying, yeah, a reconstituted terrorist threat in Afghanistan is very real. And the mission of stopping those threats has become much harder because of the U.S. series of decisions on withdrawal which ultimately land with the commander-in-chief, Joe Biden. Milley also said that the entire episode and the withdrawal and the way it went down, quote, damaged U.S. credibility. The defense secretary was playing more defense, ironically, for the president, saying, oh, he's not sure. He, he still thinks our credibility is solid. Milley said it's damaged. They also couldn't quite pinpoint the number of U.S. citizens remaining in Afghanistan. They kept saying right around 100, the number that seems to have not budged for weeks. Last segment, I said that President Biden in that interview with George Stephanopoulos either lied about what he was recommended by his generals or he forgot. Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska, he's taking sides. He put out a statement, quote, President Biden lied when he told the American people that nobody urged him to keep 2,500 troops in Afghanistan. Today, under oath, General McKenzie flatly contradicted the president. This is the worst American foreign policy disaster in a generation. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. And the president is trying to cover his ass with political spin. Throughout this bloody and shameful disaster, President Biden has relied on spin, lies, and happy talk. Ooh, Ben Sass on fire. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. 
You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back on the show here. Thanks for tuning in. We are joined once again by U.S. Senator John Barrasso, Republican of Wyoming. He's the chairman of the Senate Republican Conference, also a medical doctor. Senator, good to have you back here. Great to be with you, Guy. Thanks for having me. I want to talk about spending and the Democrats' uh, plans on Capitol Hill in just a moment. But first, uh, some really significant testimony today, and apparently they're going to reconvene here in a few minutes. In the Senate Armed Services Committee, you've got some of the top brass from the military under oath talking about the Afghanistan withdrawal uh, chaos and catastrophe. And one of the big pieces of news that has emerged is that under oath in sworn testimony, General McKenzie has contradicted what President Biden said to George Stephanopoulos last month, namely that no one that he could recall had recommended keeping 2,500 troops on the ground. That is precisely what McKenzie said he urged the president to do, and it seems like Milley did the same thing as well. Biden said that didn't happen or he couldn't remember that happening. Your reaction, Senator? Well, those are two different things, whether it happened or whether he can remember it happened. But Joe Biden is a this past experience with with him that I've had in the Senate in his time as now vice vice president, and now as president, uh, is that uh, he thinks he's the smartest guy in the room and knows more about foreign policy than anyone in the world. And he has been wrong on just about every foreign policy decision. And Afghanistan was the biggest mistake of his life from a number of reasons. And he often brags about ignoring the advice of military leaders national security leaders, and he has done similar things in the past. So, look, there are people that wanted to leave troops there. I was one that thought we ought to leave uh, troops on the ground, uh, a, a light touch, if you will, but a stay-behind force. Other people can make a reasonable argument for taking everybody out, no matter which side of the argument you're on on that. The way that Joe Biden did this was a disgrace. It was a moral disgrace. And we lost a Marine from Wyoming, 20-year-old Riley McCollum. 13 brave American soldiers lost their life in this botched effort by a president who, um, who I wouldn't trust at all in terms of foreign policy. And look, he's the president, so he's got the job, he's got the title, he's got the authority. Commander-in-chief, if he wants to ignore the generals, he absolutely can. What he can't do is hear the generals, ignore the generals, and then say the generals never told him what they did tell him. That's the problem here among several uh, that the president is running into. And I know the White House is trying to mop up what he said and clarify, but it's spin. We saw that interview, we heard the soundbite, and then we saw the sworn testimony earlier today. On the COVID front, Senator, if you could put your doctor hat on for just a second, there's this question about booster shots for certain vulnerable populations, you know, older people, people who are immunocompromised. If your constituents or your patients come to you when they see you around in Wyoming or wherever and say, you know, Senator, what do you think in terms of boosters? What should I do? What is your advice from a medical standpoint if people are asking you about that issue? Number one, vaccines work. I'm a doctor. I've been vaccinated as my family has. I'm going to get the booster shot. Uh, and there is a difference between, well, for, for years I've been on radio and television as a doctor giving medical advice saying, here in Wyoming, I'm Dr. John Barrasso helping you care for yourself. 
It's about giving people advice. It's not giving mandates. And as I said the other night in Wyoming to a group of folks, I am for the vaccine, but against the mandate. Uh, vaccines are responsible for saving many lives. Uh, we know that the people that are being hospitalized now are losing their lives. For the most part, are people that have not been vaccinated. I recommend that people get vaccinated, get the booster when you're uh, able. But I don't think there is any role for the government to mandate it. One more question on COVID. The president got his booster shot on TV yesterday. I think that's a good move. He falls within that demographic, I think, setting a good example. However, he was asked a question by a reporter about how many people will have to be fully vaccinated before we can all get back to normal. And it seems like he just kind of spitballed or shot from the hip. Here's what he said in cut seven. How many Americans need to be vaccinated first to go back to normal? Like, what is the percentage of total vaccinations that have to be deployed? Well, I think, look, I think we get the vast majority, like is going on in some of the, some industries and some schools, 97, 98%. I think we're going awful close. And, uh, right, so it's kind of hard to hear there, Senator, but he says 97, 98 percent. It's not clear if he's talking about specific industries or broadly. I just feel like numbers that high, that's not what we heard even from Dr. Fauci not that long ago. And I just wonder if benchmarks like that are, are helpful when they seem, A, unattainable and B, maybe not true. I feel like we can get back to, to normalcy without almost 100% of the country vaccinated, although you and I agree that vaccines are extremely helpful and worthwhile. Yeah, you're right. It's unachievable and not true. And that's the big problem with the communications coming out of the, this White House. At one point, they said, well, if you get vaccinated, you won't need a mask. And then they said, oh, you need a mask. And then they were saying, well, we're not so sure about the, the one vaccine, which was the one-shot vaccine, which was which was going to be very good for a lot of people who yes. uh, might have a hard time getting a second shot three weeks later. Well, only 8% of the vaccines that are given in the country were that vaccine because they got undermined by a pause that the White House and, the, and this administration put in place. You know, they need to be clear, but they're not clear in their messaging. They've been clear, unclear about the boosters over the time, and they maybe got, a, got too far ahead of their headlights. The president did in uh, being too ambitious with what he says, but that's the problem when he shoots from the hip. People look for good advice and want to make decisions from that, and they're getting right. a lot of confusing uh, messages out of the White House. It's either mismessaging or, in some ways, almost medical malpractice. Well, and the target seems to constantly be moving, which also turns people off and frustrates people and, and erodes confidence, and people start tuning things out. I think that's also part of the issue here. Senator, let me talk to you about the issue that you were highlighting today. I saw at a press conference you held up a giant stack of papers about this uh, this bill that the Democrats are going to try to pass at some point. What was that stack of papers? Because we don't actually have a final bill, right? We don't know what the top line number is going to be. We don't have the actual math yet. We don't even know what fully is going to be in this thing. What was that piece of legislation or that stack of papers that you were that you were holding up for the cameras today that's what came out of the the house markup over the weekend that they nancy pelosi uh, mandated her committee chairman to come up with the bill the the to me what i'm calling the march to big government socialism the 3.5 trillion dollar bill they're still working on it but that's 2500 pages and 
there's a lot of estimates that 3.5 is a low number. But if you right. take 2,500 pages, that equates to $1,400,000,000 for each page of the bill. In a country of over 300 million people, $3.5 trillion is over $10,000 for every man, woman, and child in America. I will guarantee you, Nancy Pelosi hasn't read that and will not read it. Chuck Schumer hasn't read it, will not. Joe Biden, who is desperately asking the, Repo- the Democrats to vote for it so he can sign it, uh, is stooping so low at this point that he has said and tweeted out on Friday that the cost of it will be nothing, the cost yeah, will what? be zero. I think it's not fair for the president to undermine the intelligence of the American people. The American people are much smarter than that. They know they will be left holding the bill, paying the bill for this through taxes, through all sorts of things. And they're feeling the pain right now, the bite of inflation that's taken out of their paychecks every time they go to the grocery store or go to the gas station. Uh, It is... What, they don't, what the administration don't want to talk about either is the fact that there's a whole new army of IRS agents uh, in that bill so they can come and squeeze taxpayers even harder. This is Bernie Sanders' socialist dream. That bill would be a nightmare for most Americans. Well, I mean, they don't have all the pay-fors in place. It would be a lot of tax increases, not just on the wealthy. We'll be talking more about that later on in the show. There's also likely to be borrowing involved here. You mentioned the, the threat the current threat of in inflation before something like this potentially passes. And you invoke the talking point that it seemed like the president just sort of uh, popped off last week about, oh, this is a zero cost. I guess the argument is if it's deficit neutral, which again is very dubious here, but arguably if they say, oh, it's deficit neutral because we're going to pay for everything with big tax increases, that means that the cost is zero. That's a novel argument in Washington, D.C., Senator, because I've been following this stuff for a while. I don't I don't know if anyone has been quite that shameless before. Well, the uh, the Democrats had kind of a, a secret report for the Democratic Senatorial Committee uh, that talked specifically about this legislation and said once people realize what the cost is going to be, that uh, the, the Democrat polling memo said when funding of the bill is going to be deficit spending. It dramatically decreases support of the bill. And the memo specifically said that, which is why I think Joe Biden read the memo or a staff did. And they said, we have to say that there's not going to be any deficit spending. And that's why he's tweeted uh, this out. The American people can see through it. Uh, They uh, realize (laughs) Americans are smart enough to know that they are going to pay for this one way or the other. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's insulting to say it's no cost, zero dollars for trillions of dollars. It's just on its face. It's insulting. Senator, I know you've got votes coming up. So let me ask you one last question. It's a two parter. Number one, Senator Schumer, the Democratic leader, uh, was uh, very angry. He said that Republicans are unhinged on the debt ceiling vote. You guys filibustered that uh, yesterday, and you're going to try to force the Democrats to do that on their own, which they can. That's been the Republican position now for months. Schumer says that on is unhinged. If you want to respond to Senator Schumer, and then if you would, maybe venture a guess. You've been on the Hill for a while. Do you have a prediction of where this is all going to come down when it comes to the Democrats and these big Two spending bills, infrastructure, which is bipartisan, and reconciliation, that is not. 
Yeah, yes. First, go, going back to the previous question, this president has lost credibility on just about everything. He's lost credibility in Afghanistan. He's lost credibility in the border. He's left, lost credibility crime in the streets. Uh, he has lost credibility COVID. on the economy and inflation. Uh, and now to say this is going to cost nothing, people see through it. With regard to the debt, debt ceiling, you know, we are at a point where the Democrats want to raise the debt ceiling and suspend it until after the 2022 election. So we're really talking about future spending. Every other time we've raised the debt ceiling, there's been a discussion about how to get spending under control in this country. The Democrats want none of that. They're going to do this with uh, the narrowest of margins in the House and a 50-50 Senate, which should be a mandate to move to the middle, not to take a freight train to the, to the socialist left. So the Democrats, if they want to raise the debt ceiling, are going to have to do it themselves. The reason they don't want to do it using reconciliation is because under reconciliation, guy, they have to put a dollar figure on it. And they don't want to do that. They just want an unlimited spending capacity oh, all the way until after the 2022 election. My prediction is the government's going to stay open. The Democrats will raise the debt ceiling. They have the authority to do that with the House and the Senate and the White House. And I'm doing everything I can to make sure that $3.5 trillion reckless tax and spending spree never becomes law because of the permanent damage it will do to our country and our economy. U.S. Senator John Barrasso, Republican, Wyoming. As I mentioned at the top, he's chairman of the Senate Republican Conference, so a member of Republican leadership in the upper chamber, also a medical doctor, which is why we snuck in a few of those COVID questions with the senator. We appreciate it, sir. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Bye. All right. Talk soon. That's John Barrasso on The Guy Benson Show, which returns right after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. As we continue here on The Guy Benson Show, we are still going with the whips. Border Patrol agents, the non-existent fictional whips, the whipping of illegal immigrants that did not happen. And yesterday, Jen Psaki circled back at the White House, talking about this, was asked about this, and she continued to talk about how horrific everything was. Horrific, horrific photos. And they actually weren't horrific photos or videos. You can say this is not pleasant to watch. I think enforcing a sovereign border is sometimes messy. Horrific invokes certain images, that word. Horrific applies to some things and not to other things. And I would say that this, this was not a horrific series of images. But that's I get the word that they all just Someone says it, and then they all just rush. I go, all right, it's horrific. We're all going to say it's horrific. Now, that's subjective. Maybe that is horrific to some people. Maybe I won't convince them otherwise. But what I find interesting about the exchange yesterday was the – what was basically uh, that they were discussing and what was being challenged just a little bit, the pushback was, well, the – allegation was that there were whips and people were being whipped and then that was not true has the view of the white house changed 
based on the facts that have come to light that contradicted and exposed the initial lie. And Saki responded in cut 29. Listen, I don't think anyone could look at those photos uh, and think that was appropriate action or behavior or something uh, that uh, should be accepted uh, within uh, our administration. There's an investigation that's ongoing. Uh, We'll let that play out. But our reaction to the photos has not changed. Our reaction has not changed. Now, again, if you take a photo completely out of context and allege that something is happening in a photo that, in fact, was not happening in the photo, and then people get spun up for political reasons, calling it horrific, and then the truth comes out, demonstrating that, in fact, there's an underlying lie here, which was promulgated not just by some angry leftists on Twitter, but by the vice president and the president of the United States, then the reality sets in that the whips and whipping slander, the smear of Border Patrol was not true. And you learn that new information. I'm not sure it is the right answer to say that our reaction has not changed. I feel like if you have a functioning brain and you think that something has happened and then you learn that that terrible thing actually did not happen, your view should change. Unless you're dealing in an alternate reality where the true reality doesn't matter. In which case your views would not in fact change. You are so committed to a fake narrative, fake news about what happened that you cannot bring yourself to admit that perhaps there was an overreaction and therefore you double and triple down and you dig in your heels. And that's what Saki is doing. And I don't think she has a choice. When the vice president and the president made decisions to triple down on the lie, their spokesperson has to sort of go along with it. So, of course, their reaction to the photos has not changed, even as the information changed. That is sort of a bullheaded, close-minded example and uh, sort of illustration of not caring at all about what the facts are and admitting it almost proudly. By the way, here's Joe Biden, 2007, a little flashback action. Listen to this. Ladies and gentlemen, no great country can say it is secure without being able to control its borders, period. Oh, that was Senator Joe Biden running for president the previous time. 2007, no great country can say it's secure without being able to control its borders, period. I saw the Republican Party tweeted that out and said, what changed, Joe? His party has changed. They were not an open borders party in 2007. They increasingly are one today. Hence, all this nonsense we're getting on the border and the spin. Another hour coming up. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show.
A new hour here on The Guy Benson Show, our middle of three, between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern time every weekday. Thank you for listening. We so appreciate it. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every day. Fox News alert. Dow just gets hammered today. It closes in the red down 569 points to 34,299. So a tough day on Wall Street. I do want to bring you an update to the story that we've been following now for days and weeks, but really in earnest these last few shows because it's crunch time. I talk about the pressure cooker that Nancy Pelosi has created this week. Over the weekend, she put out uh, an email or a letter to her colleagues on the Democratic side saying that this week where we currently are, you know, where we're in the middle of, right, we're in the midst of this week, she called it, quote, a time of intensity. And I think that the strategy seemed to be we can't fail. Ultimately, our members know that we can't fail. It will be a huge collective black eye, not just to us, but also to the president. And if we just start scheduling votes, the impasse will break. And when the chips are down, people are going to make compromises and someone's going to cave or they'll get closer and not exactly what they want and we'll be able to do something. Again, my prediction has been I think that's likely to still occur. However, as it stands on this Tuesday, just after 4 p.m. Eastern time, things are not looking great for the Democrats. And they already have a scheduled vote on Thursday for the infrastructure bill. And if you'll recall, the progressives have said, no, absolutely not. Do not vote on the infrastructure bill before we get reconciliation and all of that spending. If you do, we're going to tank it. We're going to vote no. We're going to kill it. And Pelosi was with the progressives. Now it seems like she's moving away from the progressives on this. So where things stand is as follows. This is from Rachel Bade at Politico. She tweeted this literally just a few minutes ago. Let's recap. Number one, Joe Manchin still refusing to commit After Biden meetings, he does not have a top line number that he's insisting on. So that's on the Senate side. Bernie Sanders is issuing a battle cry to progressives to kill the infrastructure bill if that vote comes first, which has been the threat all along. The progressives say they could have up to 60 votes against the bipartisan bill to kill it dead if they feel betrayed by Pelosi. Number three, Chuck Schumer has turned on Nancy Pelosi saying that he doesn't agree with the Thursday vote that has been scheduled in the House, which is on the bipartisan infrastructure bill first, not reconciliation. Schumer apparently questioning Pelosi on that. So they're not on the same page, it would seem. And finally, the president, Joe Biden, sort of missing in action. He's not whipping votes. He's sitting in on meetings. He's on phone calls, but he's not taking charge and saying this is what needs to happen. I'm the president, the leader of the party, and I'm going to do what it takes. So you read those bullet points there from Rachel Bade at this hour, and it sounds like a heavy dose of disarray for the Democratic Party. And joining me now is Congressman Michael Waltz from the 6th Congressional District in Florida. He's a combat veteran, a decorated Green Beret. And Congressman, it is great to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, good to be with you, Guy. Before I get to Afghanistan, which is the top issue that I'd like to discuss with you, I would like to get your reaction quickly to what you just heard, where it sounds like between the Senate and House leadership and some of the sort of cranky members in each camp that the Democrats are dealing with right now, 
They are hurtling toward potentially a vote on Thursday. It seems like Democrats often have their ducks in a row. Uh, The ducks are all over the place right now, Congressman. Where do you see this going? How's it playing out in your estimation? Well, I think that was a pretty accurate description from what we're seeing. I mean, you know, look, at at this point, Republicans are, you know, sitting there with our popcorn. Uh, We we were cut out of these negotiations from the get-go. We had zero input um, uh, to this, to the, you know, air quotes, bipartisan uh, bill. That was a a couple of Republican senators, but it was not bipartisan across both uh, the House and the Senate. What, What I think Pelosi is still aiming to do, uh, is get the the social infrastructure package far enough along, enough of a draft, enough of their priorities uh, in uh, uh, on the progressive side that they she can peel off enough and make enough promises uh, to get that um, infrastructure package through. Uh, get that through on Thursday. Get it through just before the government shuts down. Uh, because we also have to have the cont- continuing resolution on Thursday. And then if she can do that, if she can squeak that by, she will absolutely then take uh, that infrastructure bill and that vote and bang her moderates over the head with it uh, while it's getting necked down in the Senate to a point that um, to a point that Manchin and, and Sinema are happy enough with it, which they won't mind, by the way. One of the things you have to focus on, Guy, and I think everybody needs to understand, is the ultimate goal is to get the policy through. Uh, and once they get these policies through, whether it's whether it's free daycare, free uh, uh, pre-K, free community college, all the freebies, once they get that through and and, and the score, the price is determined by how long it currently lasts. So if, if it lasts to only 2025 instead of 2028 or 2027 instead of 2029, which will lower it from three and a half trillion down to, to you know, one and a half, it doesn't matter because she knows once you get a government program in place. Once you get it, the policy through, then it's just a matter of adding uh, dollars in later. So right. that's what I think uh, the strategy still is. And for us then, even if we're in the majority then, to vote to take away freebies, they know will be an incredibly difficult vote. Once their government programs are in place, uh, they start turning into cement. Uh, and so that's, that's what I but – but you're right, it's on a threadbare at this point. All right, Congressman, let's shift to Afghanistan. We saw so much of the testimony earlier from the military leaders, the defense secretary. Some really tough questions were asked. I think those tough questions were absolutely deserved about the fiasco on the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I know one of the big headlines seems to be that General McKenzie directly contradicted President Biden and General Milley came awfully close to doing the exact same thing, both under oath involving the recommendations they had given the commander in chief about keeping a small force on the ground. Biden had said in an interview that that did not happen, or at least he never remembered anything like that happening. Now it would appear that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the commander of U.S. Central Command both had recommended something that he said was not recommended to him, or at least he couldn't remember that. Before we shift to other questions within the realm of Afghanistan, uh, what is your reaction to that revelation today in the Senate testimony. Well, well, which is worse, guy? <laughs> Either, you know, he does have the mental faculty, right? The president doesn't to re- to um, to remember that, or that he's lying. <laughs> Either one, it's pretty bad. But I've known all along uh, that the Pentagon recommended to both President Trump and to Biden 
that we needed to leave a residual force, one that continued to keep pressure on these terrorist groups, ISIS, al-Qaeda, and others, and two, provided a basic, not out doing the fighting, but a basic backbone to the Afghan military and that kept uh, Bagram open, which is a strategic air base sandwiched between China, Russia, and Iran. Uh, that was always the recommendation. So I'm glad it came out today in the Senate. Uh, if it didn't, then I was going to get it out uh, tomorrow when they become before the House Armed Services Committee, because I've known that to be the case. Biden disregarded their advice, uh, demanded, uh, demanded they go to zero, regardless of the conditions on the ground. And now we are where we are. Congressman, let me ask you this. I know that you have been personally involved in some of these ongoing rescue missions. The Biden administration has stranded thousands of Americans certain number of citizens, certain number of permanent legal residents and green card holders, and of course, tens of thousands of Afghan allies still in that country under Taliban control. The president promised that would not be the case, but bitterly, that is the case right now. And there are people desperately trying to get folks who are at very serious risk out of that country, uh, perhaps in concert with the Biden administration or you know, without the Biden administration. When you hear the top officials at the State Department, Defense Department, and others say that the number of U.S. citizens remaining on the ground is about 100. Uh, number one, that number seems to have not changed for, for weeks at this point. They've been saying about 100 for weeks. You, you'd think that the number would come down at some point if they were actively trying to get our people out of there. Uh, you know, That's my first observation. The real question I have for you, given your knowledge of what's actually happening over there and your efforts on this front, is about 100 U.S. citizens an accurate number? No, it's a lie. I mean, look, it's a lie, and you're right to point out it hasn't changed. That was the number that Blinken was given even before the several Qatar Airways flights left, uh, with uh, supposedly with several dozen Americans on it, and before some of the flights, not all, but some of the flights in the northern city of Mazari Sharif were finally allowed to leave by the Taliban. But further, you know, Blinken, the State Department, the White House puts a very quick caveat every time they mention that number. They say that want to leave. Uh, and the big number that they're exclu- excluding are those American citizens that have family members there that are unwilling uh, to leave. And so, therefore, they're not counting those uh, because for spin and for optics reasons. I would love to ask uh, Anthony Blinken that if his family were there, if he would leave them behind. Of course he wouldn't. Uh, and therefore, would he be then categorized as not wanting to leave? And then therefore, the U.S. government was going to do nothing to help them. Uh, that's essentially the situation we're facing, Guy. But just today, uh, I've been on the phone and sending letters and helping a veterans group assist two eighty, an 80-year-old um, American couple uh, that are stuck on, on, on one of the borders, I won't disclose where, trying to get out. Uh, so there are still desperate Americans, and they have absolutely been left behind. It's un-American to leave them, and it's un-American to let terrorists dictate the terms. But that's, again, where the Biden administration has us. So Blinken, since you mentioned him, the Secretary of State, he's said and, and has been saying about 100 Americans are still stuck there, waylaid. They've, they've been there now for, for weeks, as I mentioned and he also conceded, finally admitted that there are thousands of other Americans there as well. When you consider people who have every right to be in this country, permanent legal residents of the United States of America and green card holders, is it fair to say that the number of Americans still in Afghanistan is 
in an untold realm, but of thousands. Yes. Yeah, I think that's accurate to say if you're including green card holders and legal permanent residents. You know, you hear the Democrats or the defenders of immigration, the defenders of those who want to be here, but yet the foot dragging when it comes to Afghans who are willing to stand up and die with standing alongside our soldiers, uh, that this the hypocrisy there is unexplainable to me. The kind of parsing of words, the bureaucratic obstacles, the foot dragging. We had to practically beg Republican and Democrat the administration to even start the evacuation, which we started demanding as early as April. We knew that if they took out our military assets before they had gotten everybody out, you were handing them a death sentence. Uh, It's just all inexplicable to me. It's either heartless or clueless or both. Uh, You know, I'm, I'm not sure, but it is absolutely still a crisis for these people and for their families. Heck, Guy, we're dealing with a situation where we have active duty soldiers who have families there. uh, who have family members there, and we can't get their family members out. And of course, they're all being targeted. The Taliban are going door to door, house to house, and hunting down people who stood with us. And it, it's just heartbreaking and infuriating. Yeah, we're hanging. We're seeing them hung from cranes in public. That's what they've started to do. The Taliban. Last question, Congressman: Is there progress being made? And how much is the Biden administration? I would hope at least cooperating in some way to try to streamline the process. Is there progress on this front or is it kind of a holding pattern right now? No, it, it, it's I mean, there are you know, really kind of onesies and twosies that various groups uh, are are helping to get out through various means. But wholesale, the Taliban now controls the process. Heck, an internationally wanted terrorist with a $10 million bounty that is a serial hostage taker, uh, is in charge of now who comes and goes, Saraj Haqqani, who, by the way, has been holding an American Navy veteran, Mark Frerichs, hostage uh, for the last year and a half. And as you can imagine, his family is beside himself and calling for people uh, uh, to resign. But, you know, one other piece, Guy, very quickly is General McKenzie today said, and this is key, he is not confident that Afghanistan uh, is is going to, to not descend into chaos and into a terrorist hotbed, uh, even with this over-the-horizon capability. He said that it remains to be seen. So at the end of the day, what he's tacitly admitting, and I plan to press this tomorrow uh, when they come before the House Armed Services Committee, is this over-the-horizon terrorism capability is a talking point. We have no bases in the region. We have no local allies, and they now have an army's worth of equipment uh, to, to hit us again. And the intelligence is clear. The Taliban equals al-Qaeda, and al-Qaeda intends to hit us again. Uh, we are far less safe, uh, I think, than even before 2001. And that's the ultimate tragedy, is future American soldiers are going to have to go back to deal with this problem, uh, just like we had to go back to deal with the ISIS caliphate that came roaring up in the wake of Obama pulling out of Iraq. Michael Waltz is a combat-decorated Green Beret. He now represents Florida's 6th Congressional District in the House of Representatives. Congressman, thank you for your time today. Hey, thanks so much, Guy. Talk to you soon. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. As we continue on The Guy Benson Show, 
In the last hour, we had Senator John Barrasso here, who's a member of the Republican leadership team in the Senate. And at one point, he was answering a question, and I sort of jumped in to move on to a final question, and he wanted to really drive home a point. So he said, just to quickly finish my thought, and he went back, he said, the President of the United States has really harmed, I'm paraphrasing, his credibility on so many issues, from foreign policy in Afghanistan and with allies to spending with this ridiculous talking point about how trillions of dollars cost nothing and zero dollars. You just go down the list, the border, where the administration keeps saying there's no crisis, the border's secure. Lying about Border Patrol with the whipping and all of that stuff. It's just one hit after another to the trustworthiness of the administration. And then ultimately, the president himself. And I interjected in his laundry list COVID. And to that point, Axios is out with a new poll. So it's an Axios-Ipsos poll where Joe Biden has taken a significant blow on the issue of COVID. And the question that they asked the American people, they've been tracking this since he took office. Do you trust in Joe Biden to provide accurate COVID-19 information? And the percentage of Americans who said yes, a great deal or a fair amount has been higher than the number who have said not very much or none at all in their confidence in the president's ability to provide accurate information on the pandemic. The most recent poll that just come out just came out now has the president upside down, as he is on so many issues, with 53 percent, a majority of Americans now saying they do not trust very much or at all President Biden on covid information. Just 45 percent say that they do a great deal or a fair amount. He's underwater on covid as well. And it's yet another problem and crisis of credibility of his own making. It's the Guy Benson Show. Much more to come. Don't go anywhere. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Guy Benson. Midway through the show here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening on this Tuesday, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day. I want to put a finer point on the betrayal that is coming from President Biden and the Democrats when it comes to tax increases on the non-rich. Because this is another big promise that was made in a very high-profile way. Now, of course, I would note that perhaps if a president is willing to break a solemn promise not to leave Americans behind in a terrorist-controlled country, if he's willing to wash his hands of that pledge, then a mere promise about tax rates is probably even more disposable in his mind, right? If he's willing to lie or betray that pledge about getting Americans out of harm's way in Afghanistan, I'm sort of curious what pledge won't he break? Right. That's a red line that I think was violated in such a trust shattering way that his credibility is shot across the board. 
But this was a promise he made repeatedly, so we are going to highlight it regardless, especially because it looks like they are on the brink of breaking this one as well. Now, I'll remind you, as we're thinking about this new spending package and the reconciliation bill and whatever number it's going to be, $3.5 trillion, if they're willing to also reinvent the English language and say things like this in cut three, then words also have no meaning to them. Listen. It is zero price tag on the debt. We're paying. We're going to pay for everything we spend. It's going to be zero. This is a zero dollar bill because it's going to be completely paid for. The reconciliation package would cost zero dollars. This new ludicrous talking point that they cooked up intentionally or accidentally last week, and then they're just sticking with it. All right, so if you tell Americans and American allies we're going to get you out of Afghanistan before the terrorists take the whole country over, and then you don't, and if you say that a $3.5 trillion spending bill really costs $0, I'm not really sure if you can be shamed with evidence of broken promises on other issues. Because it's just a shameless group. Nevertheless, I would suspect that a lot of the American people who voted for Joe Biden, listening to him say over and over again that unless they are rich, and he defined rich as making $400,000 or more, unless they're rich, they will not see a single tax increase under his leadership or under his policies. That's what he said. He said it as a candidate. He said it as a newly elected president. He continues to say it to this day, but it's not true. So just to remind you that we are not making this up, we're not inventing quotes, we're not putting words in the president's mouth. He gave a big policy speech about his tax proposals back in March in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And here was one of the signature lines. This is not ambiguous. This is clear cut. Cut 37, President Biden earlier this year. I start with one rule. No one, we say it again, no one making under $400,000 will see their federal taxes go up, period. That's about as airtight as you're going to get. That's a very short soundbite, and he begins by calling it a rule, right? The rule on which the rest of the policy will be built. Let's start with a rule. If you're making less than four hundred grand, no one, and he says, let me say it again, no one will see their taxes go up, Period. Right. There are three elements of that series of sentences alone. It's a rule. He repeats himself to emphasize no one. And then he adds period just to make sure it's conclusive and categorical. Just one more time. Cut 37. I start with one rule. No one. We say it again. No one making under four hundred thousand dollars. will see their federal taxes go up, period. Just a few days ago, during these negotiations with House and Senate Democrats trying to figure out what's going to be finally in this bill when the eventual language is put into place, because it's still very fluid and this stuff is up in the air, even though they're saying the votes could come this week, we still don't know what's in it. Maybe we'll have to pass another bill to find out what's in it, to quote the Speaker of the House. But here was Biden reiterating the promise in Cut 36. Only corporations and people making over $400,000 a year are going to pay an additional tax. And third, not only will no one making under $400,000 see their taxes go up, the middle class are going to get some tax cuts. 
So there you go. That was this month. We will get back to the corporate tax issue in just a second. But on the individual side, there was the promise again, 400000 or below, your taxes will not go up. In fact, you're going to get a tax cut. Now, is that true? We don't have finalized legislative language. We only have what they're working on, what we've seen in committee, what they're kicking around, what the New York Times is reporting they're talking about, and that sort of thing. But already, the indications are very strong that this pledge is going to go right under the bus. They'll pretend otherwise, but that will be a lie. And clearly, they have very little compunction about lying on this or any other front. The Joint Committee on Taxation looked at the House bill. And they concluded that tens of millions of Americans making less than $400,000 will see, surprise, a federal tax increase under the Democrats' plan. So they broke it down by income group. Again, this is the preliminary analysis based on initial numbers. But the Joint Committee on Taxation determined that 5% of Americans who make between 10 and 40 grand a year will see a tax increase. 5% of Americans who make between 40 and $50,000 a year will see a tax increase. And by the way, as I read these off, think about your household income. Think about where you fall in these categories. They determined that 9% of Americans making between 50 and 75 grand will see a tax increase. 18% of Americans making between 75 and $100,000 will see a tax increase. 35% of Americans making between one and $200,000 will see a tax increase. And 59% of Americans making between two dollars and $500,000, which is just above his cutoff, but 59% of that group would see a tax increase. Now, you might say, well, those are relatively low numbers. And when you're looking at middle-class Americans, however you want to define that, you're looking between 9 and 35%. So most people in those ranges won't see federal tax increases. But that wasn't the promise. The vow from the president was, well, let's listen again. Cut 37. I start with one rule. No one. We say it again. No one making under $400,000 will see their federal taxes go up, period. And this analysis suggests that for millions of Americans, including people making far less than $400,000, people squarely in the middle class, there will be millions of them seeing a tax increase. So there is red warning flag number one. There's also this from CNBC. House Democrats have proposed a hike on tobacco and nicotine products to help fund their $3.5 trillion spending plan. The measure would increase current levies on cigarettes, cigars, roll your own and smokeless tobacco, according to a summary of the plan. They've also proposed new taxes on vaping products. Companies typically pass so-called excise taxes along to consumers with higher prices. And then in this story, there's a quote from an official at the Tax Foundation, which is nonpartisan. And he says, quote, a tobacco tax is probably the most regressive tax out there, meaning it's hitting disproportionately working class people. This is a tax that will hit hard 
for people well below the so-called rich. This tax foundation analyst says, quote, there's no question that it's a tax on people earning less than $400,000. Now, I've played you the sound bites of the president talking about his promises. He did not have, in case I missed it, he did not have a carve out saying no one will see their taxes go up if you're making less than 400 grand unless you're a smoker or a vapor. Did you hear that carve out? I did not hear that carve out. He didn't make it. And yet there are millions of people in the country who use nicotine and tobacco products who will be slapped with a tax increase under one of the proposed pay-fors in this bill. Now, you might say, right, just playing devil's advocate like I did before, well, it's not that many people. It's still just 9 to 35% of people in the middle class who would get a tax increase. That's not most of them. His promise was nobody would see a tax hike in those income brackets. And similarly, you might say, well, it might be good to tax these types of products because it would discourage bad, unhealthy behavior. Now, you can make that case. You can say, let's tax the hell out of people who smoke or vape for their own good, right, and for the budgetary implications. But that is not what Joe Biden said or promised. The vow was a blanket one. There were not asterisks or exceptions for people who do things deemed to be undesirable things, right, or engage in undesirable behaviors. Then there's this from the New York Times. Democrats are looking at a carbon tax because they're worried that some of the Senate Democrats won't go for these other tax increases on businesses, on individuals, other tax hikes. And so they are desperately looking around for various pay-fors and they are actively exploring a carbon tax, which would involve people who consume energy, which is basically all of us. Do you drive a car? Do you heat your home? Do you have electricity? A carbon tax is also regressive, right? The people who can least afford a tax increase on their everyday life and their everyday expenses are people who are middle and working class, not the rich. Now, the Times story says that Democrats are trying to figure out, is there some sort of rebate and complex system they could figure out to lessen the burden or keep this promise about people earning under $400,000 a year? They're trying to work on that, but it sounds very complicated. And once you start going down the path and opening the door to a carbon taxes, again, that is an across-the-board consumption tax. And if they try to mitigate it with rebates, just beware because they are well short of the dollar amount that they want, that they need to call this deficit neutral with the new version of deficit neutral being it costs zero dollars, which is just a completely insane talking point. We picked that apart yesterday. I have one more really important point to make on all of this, and it goes to the business taxes, the corporate taxes, and how this also affects you. And I will lay it out as soon as we come back after this short break. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson, picking up where we left off on taxes and the president's promise and his dishonesty. So we've been through the Joint Committee on Taxation Numbers. We've been through the tobacco 
and vaping taxes. We've been through the possibility of a carbon tax. And that's just what we know of so far, because so much of this is still in limbo. But the last piece is the corporate tax, which Democrats would like to raise to 26.5%. The initial request from Biden was 28%. Congressional Democrats said, well, we're a little nervous about that. Let's make it 26.5%. Let's say they did that. Let's say it was only a corporate tax hike to 26.5%. That would still make the U.S. business tax higher than China's and higher than the average of the OECD industrialized developed world. We would be above average in the world on corporate tax, including higher than China's. We're supposed to compete on the global stage. We want to outperform China and these other countries. The tax reforms under Republicans and President Trump helped us achieve that. Biden wants to turn back that progress and make us less competitive than China and most of the developed world. That's what they would do. And by the way, when you raise taxes on businesses, what happens? Businesses adapt. They don't just absorb the hit to their bottom line. A lot of businesses are barely hanging on to begin with, especially after a pandemic. So they get hit by the government with higher taxes. They either hire fewer people, cut back hours for workers, or in some cases raise their prices for consumers and pass that along to the public, pass that along to customers in the form of higher prices. That is just basic economics. But Jen Psaki at the White House is terribly offended by this. She says that would be very unfair. Cut 32. There are some, and I'm not sure if this is the case in this report, who argue that in the past, companies have passed on these costs to consumers. I'm not sure if that's the argument being made in this report. We feel that that's unfair and absurd, and the American people would not stand for that. Except it's basic economics. It's laws of economics. You can't repeal them with circle back at the podium whining about fairness or equity. It's how the system works. It's how businesses survive and do business. You can't raise, the government cannot come in and raise the cost of doing business and expect businesses to just say, oh, okay, well, that's not going to affect our behavior in any way, shape, or form. We'll just pay, we'll just pay it. We'll pay those extra taxes. And if we go in the red, then we'll just operate at a loss in perpetuity because Uncle Sam deserves our money. That's not realistic. That's not the real world. That's a left-wing talking point that bears no relation to actual business being conducted out in reality. And sound bites and buzz phrases aren't going to change that. And by the way, when those companies raise prices, that is also tantamount to a tax increase in some ways. At least it will cost more for goods and services for customers of those companies. In an era, by the way, where we already have inflation concerns, And the bite of inflationary pressure hitting middle class and working class Americans. This will cause an increase in prices of goods and services in another way. And yet the president wants us to all believe that if you are not a super rich person out there, you're going to be fine and totally exempt and immunized from any of this stuff. It's just not true over and over again. And we've just laid out a few of the examples that we already know of or that the Democrats are already talking about out loud. So if they're going to make a promise as clearly as they have on the campaign trail and from the White House and from the president himself, 
and then turn around and break the promise in multiple ways, maybe they'll expect the rest of us to just shrug and say, oh, well, I guess that's what the cost of big government's going to be. But this is something that people were counting on when they voted for this man. And it's a pledge he continues to make, knowing that he can't keep it, hoping that you won't figure out that he's not telling the truth. We don't want him to get away with that. And I want you to understand very clearly that a massive multi-trillion dollar spending package does have real impact and, of course, real costs for everyone, not just the group of people that they're polling or their focus group suggests people are okay with. It's also coming for you, your bottom line, your family, your bank account, your livelihood, your job, your business. And we're going to stay on this. Final hour of the Guy Betson Show straight ahead. Josh Crash Hour with some very interesting political analysis, a big ratings change in a key race. We'll ask him about that and much more. It's straight ahead on the Guy Benson Show. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy Hour on this Tuesday here on the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you very much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. You can listen live between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every day. You can also catch the podcast or interviews that you may not have listened to live. It's all right there. The podcast is free. It's all free every day. On demand, GuyBensonShow.com. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. As I mentioned yesterday, we got our new shipment. We're excited about that. TheLongDrink.com. That's their website. It's 21 plus only, of course. Always drink responsibly. You can find out where this delicious citrus soda with a premium liquor kick is available near you. And they are expanding across the country. They've got a map. You can plug in your zip code, thelongdrink.com. You can also order online. That's what we do. Please, as I mentioned, drink responsibly. With that, let's get to our final guest of the show today. Josh Krasauer is politics editor at National Journal. He's also a Fox News radio political analyst. Josh, good to have you back. Great to be back, Guy. I want to start with a race that I know that you are watching very closely. We are, too. We had Glenn Youngkin on this show last week. He is the Republican nominee for governor in Virginia. This is a big off-year election, a lot of eyes on this race. Virginia is a state that has moved decisively blue in recent years. George W. Bush won Virginia in 2004. Then Barack Obama flipped it blue, and it has moved in that direction ever since. However, this race for governor, which is going to be decided in November, is very close. I saw that the Cook political report just a few days ago shifted the race from lean Democrat to toss up. There's some polling that looks better for Youngkin, the Republican. Other polling looks better for Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat. As you look at 
not just the polling data, but kind of just the mood of the country, the atmospherics of the race. What is your assessment about where that contest stands right now? And then the follow-up question beyond Virginia, what does the competitiveness of the Virginia gubernatorial race potentially portend as we look ahead into next year and the national midterms? Well, Guy, it's going to be a close race. I think that is agreed on by, by both the campaigns. Fundamentally, Virginia always goes against the president's party. It holds its election, the governor's race, a year after the presidential race. And it's had a streak of um, over 40 years where in all the governor's race elections except one, the party out of power ends up winning that governor's race. Now, the one exception was in 2013 when Terry McAuliffe, who won the governorship, defeated Ken Cuccinelli, even though Barack Obama was uh, just finishing up his uh, one his second term as, as president. So McAuliffe is hoping to make the exception, <laughs> the rule, again in 2021, but he's facing a very challenging political environment where the economy hasn't met expectations, uh, and, and that's been a big message for Democrats, not just in the White House, but in, in Virginia as well, Governor Northam, who, despite all the, the, the blackface scandal of earlier in his governorship, uh, has seen among his worst approval ratings in the last few months because the economy and COVID have, have been very uh, persistent. Now, the COVID being persistent, the economy not, not reaching the highs that the Biden administration expected. And you've also got a Republican in Glenn Youngkin, who is not your, he is the type of Republican who can win in Virginia. He's a, a Northern Virginia native, someone who's a businessman and who's not, you know, he's not, he's not a right winger. He's someone who's much more like Mitt Romney than Donald Trump. So you combine those two factors together, and this is a very winnable race for the Republicans. But, you know, the question is, where do these suburban voters that voted for Mitt Romney in 2012, and now they're leaning to the Democratic Party, do they come back home for this governor's race, or have they defected from the Republican Party and and, and not winnable enough for a good Republican candidate like Len Youngkin? And that's the thing. The state has gone further left since 2009, for sure. I mean, you mentioned that example of the 2013 race where Terry McAuliffe won and bucked the historical trend. He barely beat Ken Cuccinelli. It was a very, very tight race, sort of surprisingly close to a lot of people, I remember, in 2013. And Cuccinelli, I think, was a few steps certainly to the right of Glenn Youngkin. But the state broadly has moved left, especially in those northern Virginia suburbs and exurbs. The thing is, you say it's winnable. I agree it's winnable. It's a very close race. And yet, if you look at the polling, a handful of polls have Yunkin tied or ahead. Much of the other polling has McAuliffe barely ahead. I'm trying to figure out, though, if, for example, the recent Washington Post poll is even close to accurate. That has independence going to the Republicans by eight points. It has the exurban northern Virginia counties like Loudoun going to the Republicans by double digits. I feel like if those two things actually happen on Election Day, that's got to be an awfully difficult path to victory for Terry McAuliffe, even though he's nominally leading in that poll. Those two crosstabs, those two internal numbers uh, suggest that this is going to be perhaps a tough one for him. I'm just not sure what those numbers will actually look like. And, you know, turnout is going to be, as always, king. It's going to be the most important factor here. And to that end, Josh, I'm not sure if you saw this story. But there appears to be a liberal interest group, a Democratic group, uh, dark money, I believe, that is going in and running ads against the Republican in Western Virginia and Southern Virginia in very conservative parts of the state, 
arguing that Youngkin, the Republican, is not pro-gun enough and they're going and sort of presenting themselves as a right-wing group critiquing the Republican from the right, saying he's not committed enough on Second Amendment issues. And this seems very much sort of like whether you want to call it a suppression effort or a dirty trick. This is Democratic money pouring in to try to convince conservative voters that the conservative candidate isn't conservative enough, which is not typically what you see from Democratic groups who say, oh, this is this man is far too right wing. That's what the McAuliffe ads are saying. Oh, Glenn Youngkin is dangerous and he's extreme and he's this right winger. And then other Democratic groups are going in to try to depress turnout in conservative areas saying, oh, this guy is, you know, a, a sellout and a squish and he's, he's not good on guns. I think that's sort of interesting. Is that just the way politics works or is that a sign of desperation from the Democrats? I wouldn't call it desperation, Guy, but it's a sign that Democrats are worried about their own turnout, that, that they're worried about whether their own base is going to show up at near the same levels that they enjoyed during the entire Trump administration. I actually got, got a similar type of mailer that looked like it was from the Republican Party in Northern Virginia showing Yunkin and Trump and, and touting Trump's endorsement, which uh, may be playing well in other parts of the state, but they're clearly targeting swing voters in Northern Virginia trying to underscore the, the, the fact that Trump endorsed Yunkin and that they're, they're trying to make a big deal about the ties between the two, which does not play well in the suburban parts of the state. So, again, it looks like it's from the – I should say that was on the Democratic campaign. <laughs> they put out a mailer that makes it look like it's from the Republicans tying Trump to Yunkin. It's an example of how tight this race is and, again, the need to play some of those dirty tricks or some, some of the underhanded tactics to get every advantage. I will say one thing, Guy, about the polls. Uh, you mentioned the Cuccinelli-McAuliffe race. Polls in that race showed McAuliffe leading by double digits before November's election. And it ended. And Republicans, by the way, didn't spend a whole lot of money for Cuccinelli. They didn't think he could win the, the race. He only lost by three points. Democrats are having a case of deja vu. They see the polls. If you average them, McAuliffe has a, a small lead. But they know the history of Virginia polling. They know in a political environment that favors Republicans, the polls often can underestimate Republicans' yep. support. And I can tell you, talking to all the campaigns, McAuliffe and Youngkin alike, both of them have this race very close. Youngkin thinks, the Youngkin campaign thinks he has a small advantage. McAuliffe is statistically tied in the Democratic polling, uh, maybe a narrow lead for him. Uh, we're talking one, two points and, and, and on both ends. So this is going to be out. very close. Undecided is also there are a lot of undecideds, and that generally favors the less known candidate, the challenger or someone who's not as defined. So that's another thing that's keeping Democrats worried. They have McAuliffe under 50, got a lot of undecideds that usually would vote for McAuliffe, but something's keeping them on the fence so that they could be late Youngkin breaking votes in that governor's race. So let's say you're a listener right now and you're like, okay, that's all interesting. I don't live in Virginia, so you know I'm not necessarily watching every twist and turn of that election. I still think that there might be some lessons here. When you look at the suburbs, when you look at the exurbs, when you look at some of these swing counties and independents, and you look at the way things have shifted towards Glenn Youngkin among some of those groups that have really run away from Republicans in recent cycles, again, we'll have to see what the actual – data shows when votes are counted, not just polling. But if the polls are even close to accurate on some of these trends and shifts, that would point to, I would say, what, uh, some some potential causes for concern nationally for the Democratic Party, because those dynamics exist in swing districts and swing states and battlegrounds all across the country. Yeah, this Virginia race is more of a bellwether than other governor's races. 
because it's the only game in town, and it's literally held a year after the, the, the presidential election. And traditionally, it's played that role in its predictive nature. Um, you know, I think what you're going to see is a couple issues being really tested in Virginia that have national implications. Uh, the debate over the, the, the vaccine and the mandate. Duncan, very pro-vaccine, is running ads in Northern Virginia saying he supports vaccines, but he has deliberately avoided supporting the mandate, the, the vaccine mandate that Biden has, has endorsed. McAuliffe's ads, he's leaned in very, very heavily on requiring everyone, every employee, every government worker in Virginia to be vaccinated. Poll showed the, vac- the pro-vaccinate, the, the pro-mandate side, I should say, has a narrow advantage. But there, there's a, I've talked to some of the campaigns who think there's sort of a silent pro-vaccine, anti-mandate sentiment. And, and a lot of the, the people that are more critical of Biden's COVID plan tend to be on the Republican side. So one thing that struck me about the presidential election last year was that, you know, I, I thought you know, Trump did a pretty poor job of handling COVID. When you look at the exit polls, there were a lot of people that were actually more angry about the regulations and the mandates and the, and the lockdowns. It, it, we may see something similar in Virginia. It'll be an early test of whether Biden's plan is, is supported by swing voters across the country. So that'll be one big thing. The other one is education, which is a issue across the country, but it has some particular intensity in some of the suburban northern Virginia counties where there are a lot of parents, uh, a, lot, a lot of reporting on parents who are very aggravated about the curriculum in schools, about the closures over the last year, about, um, you know, critical race theory has come up in Loudoun right. County, which is not far from the Washington, D.C. area. We'll see if that issue has legs. So education is the number two issue, according to all the polls I've seen in Virginia. It's hard to break down where people stand on every little aspect of education. But we know the grassroots conservatives and even a lot of moderates are very dissatisfied about the state of play in education in the state. That could be a sleeper issue. If you see numbers where Duncan is running competitively in Loudoun County, in Prince William County, the exurbs, that is a, a sign that education may have broken. This usually benefits the Democrats. It's a sign that, that Yunkin may have captured an issue that traditionally favors the Democratic Party. Early voting is underway in Virginia. Last question, Josh. Shifting to Capitol Hill and federal politics, you've watched our politics for a long time. You're well-sourced on Capitol Hill. Do you have a sense of where this thing is headed uh, for the Democrats on infrastructure, human infrastructure, whatever they want to call the reconciliation bill? the constant dance between the progressives and their threats and the moderates who were upset. Do you have a prediction about where this is headed? I'll say this. As of this morning, Nancy Pelosi was strongly hinting that she would put the infrastructure bill up up for a vote on Thursday and hope that there's enough arm twisting of the progressives to at least take that portion of of, of victory and then work on the, the reconciliation bill later. That's not what the progressives were promised. That's not what they want. They, 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 they fear that they're not going to get much of the spending, if any, if that route goes forward. Now, what I find kind of striking is the, absolute, the fact that the White House, Joe Biden, hasn't taken the side of the moderates, even though Pelosi is now starting to move in that direction. Biden has stayed on the sidelines. He's not endorsed uh, a plan of action. He's not endorsing. He's not endorsed his own, his own legislation, his own bipartisan bill that he championed having a chance for victory. I think if he was more engaged, he's not going to get every progressive in the Democratic Party, but he'd get enough of them with, with enough Republican support. You've got about a dozen Republicans willing to support the, the bipartisan package. It could get passed through. I've been struck, Guy, that Biden has been awfully disengaged and, and, and more importantly, just not taking sides, not picking a side 
at a time when he needs to. to yeah, get that's the thing. Like he's engaged, back. right? He's he's got people shuttling through, and Kirsten Cinema was at the White House twice today, and he's having conversations. But it doesn't seem like he's leading in terms of saying this is what I insist happen, and I'm going to now impose my will as best I can to make it happen. And maybe that will turn out to be strategically the right move. Maybe not. But I've always thought this is the Pelosi show, personally, and I generally don't bet against Pelosi. I don't think that they're going to get everything that they want. I think they're going to get something done. But part of it also feels like this thing is careening towards Thursday, and the leadership is not confident because the cats have not been herded. And whether they get them all herded in a matter of days remains a mystery, but we'll know soon enough. Josh Krausauer, politics editor at National Journal, Fox News Radio political analyst. Josh, always appreciate it. Thanks, Guy. And the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues next. You're listening to Guy Benson. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Thanks for tuning in. So just a little soundbite from over in the UK, our friends over there. The Labour Party, which is their left-wing party, it's been out of power for years. They are having their party conference. And there's been a controversy, or a row, as they might say, involving transgender people and how words are used. The leader of the Labour Party, Ken Starmer, recently said that it is transphobic to say that women have cervixes. And here at this show, we are very tolerant. We are very inclusive. I'm a member of the LGBTQ community. I also think it gets crazy when we start erasing women and trying to reinvent the English language in order to satisfy the sensitivities of a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of people. Like we can still talk about trans people in a respectful way and deal with them in an interpersonal way by using pronouns and other words that they prefer to the best of our ability without effectively saying that referring to women and mothers and breastfeeding or any of this stuff is transphobic. And yet on the hard woke left, this is what they're doing. But it's also angering some of the feminists in their midst. So it's very awkward. So Rachel Reeves is a member of the Labor Party. She is the shadow chancellor of the Exchequer, so sort of like the shadow treasury secretary in waiting from the opposition party. She was asked about this in an interview, and it was cringeworthy because they don't know what to say. Their own rules, their own lexicon is so confusing and fraught with peril that this is the type of answer you get. Cut 33. Is it transphobic? Yes or no? Is it is it transphobic? Look, I just I don't even know how to start answering these questions. I I just don't find them. I just don't find them. The party leader suggests it is. So, what what do you, as shadow chancellor, say? I think that people should be able to identify with the gender that they feel comfortable. Respectfully, shadow chancellor, that wasn't my question. My question is: Is it transphobic to say only women have a cervix? It's, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. That was basically her answer for the first ten seconds as she tried to figure out how to walk through this landmine, and it is a landmine filled with explosive devices, rhetorically planted by the woke left, and this is her side. This is how the left is trying to tiptoe around their own rhetoric with 
trans people on one side of the fight and really just activists, feminists on the other. And that's how you get these exasperated, confused answers because they are terrified to offend anyone. Simply by stating facts, you'd think at least they would have some sort of style guide where they would know exactly which words to use and which ones not to use. But then, of course, there are normal people to whom this all sounds like Greek. And that answer, if you can call that an answer from her, I thought was interesting and perhaps slightly entertaining as she suffered in the thicket of woke vocabulary. Enjoy, Wokesters. It's The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. In our first hour today, we caught up with Senator John Barrasso, Republican of Wyoming. He's the chairman of the Senate Republican Conference, also a medical doctor. Always an interesting conversation with the senator. And he was commenting on where things stand on Capitol Hill and also got into other issues as well. For a taste of our conversation, listen to this. I want to talk about spending and the Democrats' uh, plans on Capitol Hill in just a moment. But first, uh, some really significant testimony today, and apparently they're going to reconvene here in a few minutes. In the Senate Armed Services Committee, you've got some of the top brass from the military under oath talking about the Afghanistan withdrawal uh, chaos and catastrophe. And one of the big pieces of news that has emerged is that under oath in sworn testimony, General McKenzie has contradicted what President Biden said to George Stephanopoulos last month, namely that no one that he could recall had recommended keeping 2,500 troops on the ground. That is precisely what McKenzie said he urged the president to do, and it seems like Milley did the same thing as well. Biden said that didn't happen or he couldn't remember that happening. Your reaction, Senator? Well, those are two different things, whether it happened or whether he can remember it happened. But Joe Biden is a this past experience with with him that I've had in the Senate in his time as now vice vice president and now as president uh, is that uh, he thinks he's the smartest guy in the room and knows more about foreign policy than anyone in the world. And he has been wrong on just about every foreign policy decision. And Afghanistan was the biggest mistake of his life from a number of reasons. And he often brags about ignoring the advice of military leaders, national security leaders, and he has done similar things in the past. So, look, there are people that wanted to leave troops there. I was one that thought we ought to leave uh, troops on the ground, uh, a, a light touch, if you will, but a stay-behind force. Other people can make a reasonable argument for taking everybody out, no matter which side of the argument you're on on that. The way that Joe Biden did this was a disgrace. It was a moral disgrace. And we lost a Marine from Wyoming, 20-year-old Riley McCollum. 13 brave American soldiers lost their life in this botched effort by a president who, um, who I wouldn't trust at all in terms of foreign policy. Yeah, look, he's the president, so he's got the job, he's got the title, he's got the authority, commander-in-chief. If he wants to ignore the generals, he absolutely can. What he can't do is hear the generals, ignore the generals, and then say the generals never told him what they did tell him. That's the problem here among several uh, that the president is running into, and I know the White House is trying to mop up what he said and clarify, but it's spin. We saw that interview, we heard the soundbite, and then we saw the sworn testimony earlier today. On the COVID front, Senator, if you could put your doctor hat on for just a second, there's this question about booster shots for certain vulnerable populations, you know, older people, people who are immunocompromised. If your constituents or your patients come to you when they see you around in Wyoming or wherever and say, 
you know, Senator, what do you think in terms of boosters? What should I do? What is your advice from a medical standpoint if people are asking you about that issue? Number one is vaccines work. I'm a doctor. I've been vaccinated as my family has. I'm going to get the booster shot. Uh, and there is a difference between, well, for, for years I've been on radio and television as a doctor giving medical advice saying, here in Wyoming, I'm Dr. John Barrasso, helping you care for yourself. It's about giving people advice. It's not giving mandates. And as I said the other night in Wyoming to a group of folks, I am for the vaccine, but against the mandate. Uh, vaccines are responsible for saving many lives. Uh, we know that the people that are being hospitalized now are losing their lives. For the most part, are people that have not been vaccinated. I recommend that people get vaccinated, get the booster when you're uh, able. But I don't think there is any role for the government to mandate it. One more question on COVID. The president got his booster shot on TV yesterday. I think that's a good move. He falls within that demographic, I think, setting a good example. However, he was asked a question by a reporter about how many people will have to be fully vaccinated before we can all get back to normal. And it seems like he just kind of spitballed or shot from the hip. Here's what he said in cut seven. How many Americans need to be vaccinated first to go back to normal? What is the percentage of total vaccinations that have to be deployed? Well, I think, look, I think we get the vast majority, like it's going on in some of the, some industries and some schools, 97, 98%. I think we're going awful close. And, uh, Right, so it's kind of hard to hear there, Senator, but he says 97, 98 percent. It's not clear if he's talking about specific industries or broadly. I just feel like numbers that high, that's not what we heard even from Dr. Fauci not that long ago. And I just wonder if benchmarks like that are, are helpful when they seem, A, unattainable and B, maybe not true. I feel like we can get back to, to normalcy without almost 100 percent of the country vaccinated, although you and I agree that vaccines are extremely helpful and worthwhile. Yeah, you're right. It's unachievable and not true. And that's the big problem with the communications coming out of the, this White House. At one point, they said, well, if you get vaccinated, you won't need a mask. And then they said, oh, you need a mask. And then they were saying, well, we're not so sure about the the one vaccine, which was the one shot vaccine, which was which was going to be very good for a lot of people who yes. uh, might have a hard time getting a second shot three weeks later. Well, only 8% of the vaccines that are given in the country were that vaccine because they got undermined by a pause that the White House and, the, and this administration put in place. You know, they need to be clear, but they're not clear in their messaging. They've been clear, unclear about the boosters over the time, and they maybe got, a, got too far ahead of their headlights. The president did in uh, being too ambitious with what he says, but that's the problem when he shoots from the hip. People look for good advice and want to make decisions from that, and they're getting right. a lot of confusing uh, messages out of the White House. It's either mismessaging or, in some ways, almost medical malpractice. Well, and the target seems to constantly be moving, which also turns people off and frustrates people and, and erodes confidence, and people start tuning things out. I think that's also part of the issue here. Senator, let me talk to you about the issue that uh, you were highlighting today. I saw at a press conference you held up a giant stack of papers about this uh, this bill that the Democrats are going to try to pass at some point. What was that stack of papers? Because we don't actually have a final bill, right? We don't know what the top line number is going to be. We don't have the actual math yet. We don't even know what fully is going to be in this thing. What was that 
piece of legislation or that stack of papers that you were that you were holding up for the cameras today? That's what came out of the the House markup over the weekend that they Nancy Pelosi uh, mandated her committee chairman to come up with the bill the the to me what I'm calling the march to big government socialism the 3.5 trillion dollar bill they're still working on it but that's 2500 pages and there's a lot of estimates that 3.5 is a low number but if you right. take 2500 pages that equates to 1 billion 400 million dollars for each page of the bill. In a country of over 300 million people, $3.5 trillion is over $10,000 for every man, woman, and child in America. I can guarantee you, Nancy Pelosi hasn't read that and will not read it. Chuck Schumer hasn't read it, will not. Joe Biden, who is desperately asking the, Repo- the Democrats to vote for it so he can sign it, uh, is stooping so low at this point that he has said and tweeted out on Friday that the cost of it will be nothing, the cost yeah, will what? be zero. I think it's not fair for the president to undermine the intelligence of the American people. The American people are much smarter than that. They know they will be left holding the bill, paying the bill for this through taxes, through all sorts of things, and they're feeling the pain right now, the bite of inflation that's taken out of their paychecks every time they go to the grocery store or go to the gas station. Uh, It is... What, they don't, what the administration don't want to talk about either is the fact that there's a whole new army of IRS agents uh, in that bill so they can come and squeeze taxpayers even harder. This is Bernie Sanders' socialist dream. That bill would be a nightmare for most Americans. My full interview with Senator John Barrasso of Wyoming, available online at GuyBensonShow.com. Also, it's part of the free podcast, the entire show, every day, on demand, free, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, we talked about this a little bit yesterday. We didn't have time because we had that interview with Dr. Gottlieb, which I recommend you go back and check out on the podcast should you have missed it. But we didn't have time to get into an interesting Sunday evening that Adam and I had at a concert where we saw a ton of other people from Fox. Producer Christine is very curious about this, and we have some news, a little announcement that's related to this story. We'll get to all of that on the home stretch when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch here on the Guy Benson Show, bumping in on the live broadcast with another Five for Fighting song as we did yesterday. And as we mentioned in the tease, we didn't quite have the real estate on the show yesterday to get into our Sunday night concert experience, but I know Christine had burning questions about what we did. So I wanted to tell the story, especially because we've got some exciting news related to this. So the background is, I would say mid last week, I got a DM, a direct message on Twitter from John Andrasik, who is the Five for Fighting singer. He said, hey, I'm doing a tour right now and we're going to be in the D.C. area and would love for you and Adam to come if you have any availability. So I went to his website and looked at the dates And in Alexandria, Virginia, which is just across the Potomac River from D.C., there was a concert on Sunday night, and I checked the schedule, and I said, yeah, I think that would be great. He said, yeah, feel free to bring a couple friends if you want to. And so they had four tickets ready or just, you know, the the list at the gate, and they had all these things that you had to do and show your vaccine card and everything. But when I walked in, immediately I saw – because we were a little bit late. There was an opening act. We got there in plenty of time for Five for Fighting at 
a cool venue. I mean, it had clearly been around for quite some time. And I did not even know that it existed. I think it was called the Birchmere Theater, something like that. And it was intimate, four, five, six hundred people maybe. And most folks were already seated inside listening to the opening act. But hanging around at the bar were the people that I invited in addition to Adam. We invited Mark and Molly Hemingway. Mark, who is a writer, a conservative writer, and his work is pretty well known. Of course, Molly Hemingway, our colleague here at Fox News, we see her all the time on TV. She comes on this show regularly. She and I actually were on special report together on the panel last night. So I'd reached out to Molly, and they were going to meet us there. So they beat us to the concert. So they were having a few cocktails waiting for us. And then with them hanging out were Peter Ducey and his wife, who are both on air at Fox News. So they got some beers. We got some beers. Mark and Molly had their cocktails. And then they came and they seated us in these amazing seats. And it's sort of tables with actual service at the tables where you can order drinks or food during the concert itself. And they sat us like front and center, just behind kind of like the front row of tables, if you will. And the young woman who was opening for Five for Fighting, she was good. She kind of had a Sarah Bareilles vibe. And I like that. And then out came John, and he was performing, Five for Fighting, with a string quartet. So I believe it was three violins and a cello. And they had various arrangements to accompany him on a number of his songs, including the most famous ones. And then a few that I hadn't heard before. In fact, he told a really interesting story about a song That was, in fact, extremely sad. It was about divorce through the eyes of a child. And he set that up so when you listen to the lyrics, it was like a gut punch. And I'm sure it was especially affecting for children of divorce. But he told the story about how that was the song that he played for this woman who kind of discovered him at a piano bar where he was playing when he was much younger in his 20s. And she was a talent scout and she had helped sign record deals for major bands. And she had approached him and she said, you're talented. I'd like to get you a record deal. But you need that song, any, you know, that song that's your breakthrough song. So he would write songs and he would play them for her. And he said that she would sometimes even stop him a quarter or a third of the way through the song being like, that's not the song. And then this is the song that he wrote. It ended up not being a huge hit for him. But in her mind, she sat through the whole thing in silence and she She sat through the whole thing in silence, and then she said, that's it. There's your song, and she was able to get him a record deal. And it's funny because it, again, did not become one of his most famous tunes. So he plays it. It was actually a beautiful song. Hadn't heard it before. And it ended, and he said, by the way, there is a somewhat happier ending to such a sad song which is that woman who came in and told me this was it and my path to a record deal, and then I got the record deal. I ended up marrying her, and we've been happily together ever since. So that was his wife. So that was, that was cool. Of course, he played the song that we bumped in with during the segment, Riddle, which might be my favorite of his songs. I know that Superman is more popular. A Hundred Years might be his biggest hit that he's ever had. But the riddle was definitely on the charts. I remember hearing it. It got radio play. 
That might be my favorite song of his. He played all three. He had this string quartet as well, and there was one point where he sort of took a break, almost his own personal intermission, and went backstage to you know, have a drink of water or use the bathroom or whatever, and just the four musicians with their string instruments played a montage, sort of a medley, of a whole array of music. And it was pretty cool. Like they played the Game of Thrones theme song at one point. They played the Mario Nintendo theme song. They played some classic rock hits, and you didn't really know what was going to come next. So that was one of the highlights as well. He played a song later called Tuesday, which was inspired by 9-11. He closed with Live and Let Die by Paul McCartney, the Bond film theme song that's quite popular. He was on piano, and then he had the strings with him. That was awesome. And then he dismissed, this was after the encore, he dismissed the string quartet from the stage, and he stayed out for one more song on guitar, just a acoustic guitar and him, John Andresik, who's the singer, Five for Fighting. And this was a song that he wrote in anger and frustration because he is very tied into the military community. He's performed for the troops in the USO. He's got lots of friends and contacts in the military. And what's happened in Afghanistan angered him profoundly. And he feels like it's a betrayal not only of the people that were lied to and stranded, but also a stain on the nation. So he wrote effectively a protest song. And he said this is not a political song necessarily, although it does unsparingly go after Joe Biden. Secretary Blinken is named. Secretary Austin is named. General Milley is named. Of course, a few of those guys were testifying today. He said, I didn't want my other musicians up on stage because if there's video of this, I don't want them getting canceled if someone decides to make this all political. He said, to me, it's not political. To me, this is a moral song. And he performed it. And he performed it with a visceral anger. And I am excited to announce that Five for Fighting will be appearing on this show on Friday. We will talk to John. We will play this protest song. We'll ask him about it. We'll ask him about some other stuff as well. But Five for Fighting in the house on the Guy Benson Show on Friday. So circle your calendar. I am looking forward to that conversation. Back here for the Wednesday edition of The Guy Benson Show. Same time, same place tomorrow. Have a great night. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.